What's going on, Redemption Church? So good to be with you this morning. Now, we got a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm going to get right to business with the report on the financial things of the building, because that's our commitment right now, every week, roughly, to give you an update. Uh, now, last week, and kind of in the previous couple of weeks, we've shared with you that we have a new kind of this hub stretch goal that we're going after, which is we're seeking to raise $440,000 between now and roughly the end of June, June 25th, right in there. And so last week I came in and shared that we had raised so far 266,000, but, 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 we also found we had a little bit of a software glitch with that number, so it isn't quite that big. Uh, this week we had some more giving go come in, and from that we should have a number that can come up on the screen, hopefully back there someplace. Actually, oh, it's like, my man Michael's like, I'm on the computer, I'm getting there. Were you getting a cup of coffee there really quick? Because if you were, I don't blame you, man. Because I know trying to follow my slides, you need to be amped up on some juice. All right. So uh, we're seeking to raise 440000 by June 25th. So far, what we have, 243163 So last week, we reported that we had 60% of the goal kind of raised so far. Back, drops back a little bit to two fifty-five. We did have some money come in, but the discrepancy in the app that we realized this week was about $30,000, so we had to make an adjustment. So FYI, there's the adjustment. Still, it's going phenomenal. If you want to give to that, that's awesome. You can do that by way of check being sent to the church, to our PO box, or you can do it in the app. The other thing about the app if you go to that text tile and uh, click on it and you see that number, at the bottom you're also going to see that it says there's only one giver, right? Like you might notice that sometimes, like, oh, there's been one person that did this. That's a part of the software we don't love also. It's not our software. We have to, you know, kind of lease this from a company. And it's something that they can't adjust, and we don't know why, because the powers that be just don't have the powers to do that, I guess. So anyway, just so you know, that's kind of what's going on there. But this is a great number. It's going awesome. The project's going great. If you see it, all the debris is off the lot at this point. And so it's just kind of down to the initial foundation. That's going to blow out to the north and blow out to the east. There's going to be some expansion there. But great stuff all the way around that's going on. So... There's our update for this week, but beyond that, I want to simply take a moment here to pray this morning, remind you that we also have an app with the notes inside if you want to follow along that way, because again, it's just a great way to kind of track, remind yourself of things down the road if you want to go back and look at those. But I want to pray for us today, because again, part of what we're looking at is going to be super easy, part of what we're looking at, it's a little bit of a head scratcher, so there's a lot in there, and so we're going to jump into it with some prayer. If you would join me, I would love that. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that you give us messages that sometimes are easy to understand and then tough to live out. And then other times you give us messages that are tough to understand and we're not quite sure how to live it out. And all of that is kind of in today. So I ask that you would kind of get our thinkers going, that you would get our hearts in tune with you uh, and that you would teach us your very best. And so we love you, Jesus, and we thank you so much for the kindness you show us. And so we look to you today to guide us and teach us in your great name. Amen. All right, so uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed this about families, uh, but they seem to, when they come together, have kind of a collective personality, you know? So you might have different individuals in the family, and you kind of know their individual vibe, you know? But when everybody congregates, there's like this spirit of the thing where the sum is almost greater than the parts. So when the Boswells get together, for example, it is bedlam, man. 
because all of my kids have the same gift as myself, the gift of sarcasm. So you have sarcasm, they all speak fast, they're all quick-witted, and, and, and it's just loud. We're a good Scottish family. So when we're together, I mean, we are rifling through topics. It could be like philosophy, then ethics, and pop culture, then Mario Kart, and then a TikTok, and all of that like in seven seconds, you know? And, and it's just energy, and it's fun, and it's laughter, and it's kind of crazy, you know? And, and I remember years ago when my now son-in-law came to visit the family for the first time. My daughter met him in college, brought him home for the weekend, and we had a big family get together. And it was just like that. It was crazy. Everything was all over the place. And it was like laughter and fun and furious and fast and everything else. And after like two hours, David just vanished, just disappeared. And, and we're like, where did David go? And the next morning, we're like thinking like, we just chased this kid off and we really like him. What a bummer, you know? And the next day he's like, you're like a hive mind, you know? And, and it was so much energy, I was just exhausted by the time it was over. Now he's built up his stamina, and he can compete with the rest of us, right? So it's really, really awesome. But that's kind of our family vibe, you know? And, and probably in your family, there's something similar, right? There's just these dispositions and demeanors that come out in a certain kind of way, and you go, that's our family. Well, I believe the family of God is something similar. In other words, uh, we are all God's sons and God's daughters. We're God's kids and his family. And he brings this family together to have a type of disposition, to have an essence that is kind of the family essence. And it flows from God being our dad, bringing that essence to bear kind of in our lives so that we have this collective feel. And I believe that's part of what John is focusing on as we look at 1 John chapter 5 today. Now, he's continuing a theme that we started last week, and half of today is going to be about that, and then half of today is going to go in a completely different direction. But when it comes to this vibe, this feel, this family dynamic that we're to inhabit, I want to refresh you on where we have been. So last week when we were together, we learned that, first of all, God is love. God is love. That is his essence, his being. All true love in the universe flows from who God is. And so God is love. And we, as his kids, are his deeply loved kids. He so loved us, he gave a son. He so loved us, he's endowed us with the Spirit. He so loves us, he says, man, all of your offenses, they're gone because, man, I brought you in to be one of my own. In this, the third thing is that we have siblings that dad wants you to love just as he loves you. And that's a little harder, right? But, but that's exactly what Jesus says. To the same degree that I have loved you, love one another. So there is the link. If we go, man, Jesus loves me a lot. He's like, great. If you understand that, then that's how I want you to love one another. Because in doing that, that is then bringing God's full love to expression, which was kind of the fourth idea of last week. That God shows love in Christ, and Christ goes to the cross in love, and he forgives us in love, but so he can express his love through us, and that's the full circuit. That's the reason all of the work of Christ is done. It's so we can do this thing called love. So that is the family dynamic. What this all means for us then this morning as we jump into chapter 5 is the first thing in your notes. It means loving dad means loving what dad loves. So if dad loves a thing and we love dad, then we want to love what dad loves. Now, when John opens this up in chapter 5, verse 1, he's going to use a phrase that he's used elsewhere in his letter. And the phrase is simply, everyone who blanks has become a child of God. And so you see the family dynamic. We're all God's kids, right? If, if we've done these things or these things are part of our life, and that blank 
is connected then to this idea of the spirit of the family, how it ticks. Now, back in chapter 2, the first time he used this phrase, he says it's everyone who does what is right. Thus, God's kids are all about doing, right? Doing things that are truly right or righteous because that's who Christ is. Then we jump into chapter 4. And he says also everyone who loves has been born of God. And so God's kids are about the doing and God's kids are about the loving. But now in chapter 5 verse 1, he says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And so doing, loving, and believing are the responses of everyone that has become one of God's kids. Like that, that's just, again, when we talk about family dynamic and family, family vibe, those are the vibe. Those three dispositions are the baseline of the believer. And it's the way the world knows that we're actually a part of God's family. Like this is our distinctive. This is our brand, if you will. And I love this because, again, it's the way we represent God well. I was listening to sports radio this week listening to Bumpin' Stacy, and uh, love Michael Bumpus. And he was talking about when he was a kid, before he would go to school or go to a sporting event or just hang out with his friends, his mom would stop him and say, Michael Bumpus, you're my son. And when you're out running around in the neighborhood and you're out on the field and you're out at school, you represent me, young man. So represent me well. And Bumpus was always like, yes, mom, I'm gonna represent you well. And he goes, I hope I did my mom well the whole time I was growing up. And I love that because I think that's what God is saying to us in this section. You're my kids, so represent me well. I want you to be doing what is right. When we come to a fork in the road in life and we have a choice to make, always do the next right thing. And then when it comes to other people, man, be loving others well. In the same way you experience love, make sure you do the loving thing. And then believing that Jesus is the Christ, which is more than just say, hey, I believe these facts but it's saying, I, I believe who he is, I believe what he's asked me to do, and I want to do that because I believe. In fact, if anything, truly believing is about doing and loving. Thus, in light of that, going back into 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, it says, as a child of God, understanding these dynamics, everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. Right? So again, this is just understanding this is what our nature is all about. And I love these three words kind of in relationship to because believing brings us into the family. Doing and loving showing, shows that we are a part of the family. And, and we do this because we're loving what the Father loves. Now, let's be really candid. Is it easy to love in this way? No. See, one of the craziest things I find about the Bible is it's not the, 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 the hard ideas that are so challenging. It's the really easy ideas those are the challenging ones. Those are the tough ones, right? Where it's just very clear, black and white, not hard to intellectually understand, but very hard to apply. Because love takes things like sacrifice and self-control, takes patience and forgiveness and making allowance for one another's faults and weaknesses and mistakes. It's believing the best when we're tempted to believe the worst. And see, part of this idea of loving, too, doesn't mean I'm going to love others because they're so worthy of my love. Sometimes people are, quote, not worthy of it. They don't always make it easy for me to love, but I want to love them because I so love God and God loves them. I want to close that circuit and I want to love them as God does, too. In fact, an example of this for me was a while back with my kids. 
So one of my kids had done something that had really kind of hurt another one of my kids. And the one that was hurt was kind of like, I'm gonna create some distance for a while because I've been wounded, you know? And, and, and so I, I'm just gonna kind of back off and let them do their own thing and I'm gonna do my own thing. And, and so I came to the wounded one and I said, listen, I get it, I really get it. But will you do me a favor? Will you love your sibling anyway? And will you love your sibling because I love your sibling? Like, I know that's going to be hard, but would you partner with me in loving them well so that in loving them well, hopefully they'll know they're loved, and that's going to even help them in life as they continue to move forward. And so that was kind of the heart behind it, and they did this. They leaned into it, and they're like, Dad, because I love you, I will do this thing for you. And it was good for them, it was good for their sibling, and it was certainly good for me who was trying to get the kids to love one another as I love them. And I think this is exactly where God is at because he knows, man, there are times where it is hard to love one another as Christians. And that should be the thing that we're really, really good at, right? Because we've experienced this thing and we've experienced it from God, so we should want to share with one another. But sometimes we struggle, and so John's trying to get us back on track. But it doesn't just stop with us as Christians. We should also love our neighbor and even love our enemy. And I push that a lot. Because I do think that's the most extreme form of how we display we love God. We love those who are against us in his name. And we do that because what's John, or what's uh, Paul rather say in the book of Acts? He says, we are all God's offspring. Whether we're Christians, just somebody's neighbor, man, somebody that hates us. That's still God's image bearer. That's still God's offspring. And we want to love them because that's our brand and our jam. And so we should love in this way. Then John goes into verse 2. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, there's about three things in here that I want to kind of highlight. The first is that John kind of flips something here. Like, originally, what he talked about is we're to love others for God's sake. But now he flips it, and he's saying, listen, here's the good news. If you really love God, and you really love what God says— then it is unavoidable that you're going to love other people. That's really what he's getting at here. It's kind of like, hey, here's the encouragement. If you really double down on this idea that you're in it for him and you really trust this message as God's word, you can't help but just love the people around you. It's going to be natural to you because you're sold out to this idea. You're committed to it. Which also then kind of confronts me a little bit. Because if I say I love God and I love God as said, but I don't love other people, then maybe I don't quite love God and this as much as I think. So it confronts me, or at least causes me to ask the question, am I really all in as I meant to be all in, right? So that's kind of the first thing that sticks out to me. The second thing is this idea that loving God means I'm going to want to do what he asks. I'm going to be eager for that, right? Like, I think about this with my wife. Like, I super dig my wife. Y'all know I dig my wife, Ellen. And, and so my, my wife just has to hint a thing, and I'm all over it, right? So she'll be like, you know what would be really fun? We should go away to, like, Whidbey for a couple of days. Wouldn't that be cool? And she's just floating an idea. She's not saying, hey, let's plan it. Let's do it. Let's put it on the calendar. She just kind of hints at a thing, and boom, I'm on my computer. I'm doing Airbnb, right? Trying to find a place. We're going to go here. It's going to be right on the water. It's going to be so cool. We're going to hang out. These are the dates. These are the times. This is when we're leaving. It's going to be rad. So pack your bags. We're going, right? Like, that's my jam. And she's like, whoa, I was just floating an idea. But I'm like, that you floated it, I loved it, I ran with it, right? Because I love you so much. And see, that's kind of the way this is to be. Like, you know this. 
when there's somebody that you care about or a group that you love or a thing that you're bought into, you're eager to put into action your affection. It's not just enough to have an affection. You're like, no, I want to act on this affection. And so that's part of the attitude here. I'm ready to go, right? But then in this too, the third thing is the driver is that this kind of love or obeying God in the way of love is not burdensome. Burdensome. Now, I'll be real with you, and you're all going to know this. Sometimes love is a burden. It is. In fact, if anything, sometimes love carries a burden. Love feels a burden. And that's really okay, right? It's fully understandable. In fact, here's a picture of my grandbabies right up here. I think we have a picture. There they are. There's my sweet grandbabies. I think right there was on our porch last week, and they're dancing to Thunderstruck by ACDC, because... That's how their oppa exposes them to things. And my grandson is pounding water, but you notice it has a straw? <laughs> but he's so in it, he's just like, bam, I'm slamming air, baby. And then Pepper's just like, yeah, you know, she's doing her thing, right? And I love these grandbabies, man. They're fun, they're cute, they're loving, they hug you, they laugh with you, they give you a sense of life and energy. But you know what? They're also territorial. And sometimes they're difficult. Sometimes they're demanding. I mean, I watch their parents, and I get exhausted just watching, right? Diaper changes, and they don't want to lay down, and they want this snack, not that snack, and they want to fight over this toy and everything else. And sometimes, you ready? These precious little babies can't be a burden. They can be. The people we love can be sometimes a burden. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 6. He's like, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, that's true love. In, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about the cross, and he says, the cross is coming, and it's burdensome to my soul. Now, we know it was for love that he goes to the cross, but it was still a burden in that sense. And so love can be a burden. But what John is saying here is that doesn't mean that love is automatically burdensome. Obeying the command to love isn't burdensome. See, burden means to carry, but that end of the word some means to cause to extreme. When you look at the etymology And God's saying I don't cause a burden That's to the extreme Now when you look in Matthew chapter 23 Jesus deals with religion And he drops the hammer baby Like he comes in And he's like these guys When they bring the law And they bring the standard And they bring the dogma It crushes people Under loads too great to bear That's burdensome And Jesus is like I'm not about the burdensome Right? I don't want to crush you under the load, crush your heart, crush your spirit, crush your resolve. That's not what God is about the business of doing. In fact, if anything, God sends Jesus so there might be burden, but it's not some. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden that I give you, well, that burden is light. Now, he doesn't say there's no burden. But what he's saying is, I'm not asking you to white-knuckle this. Because that's sometimes how we feel. Like, oh, I've just got to grip really tight and bite down hard and get through loving, evil, difficult, hard, challenging people. So I'm not asking you to do that. But what I am asking you to do is lean into me. 
Let me give you what you need daily to do this well. Which means to love well, to do this command and not feel the burden, means seeking and asking and relying, right? Prioritizing the family values every day. And I think to really do this requires then the essence of what Christianity is kind of all about, which isn't simply grace, though that's true, but it's also faith. It's faith. And so we have to realize, the second point in your notes, that we have been overcome by the love of God to be overcomers in the world through faith in Christ. That's a mouthful, I know. But that's what it comes down to. We have been overcome by the love of God to be overcomers in the world through faith in Christ. Verse 4 He says, for every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, a couple of notes here I just want to kind of highlight. The first is we see defeats at the beginning. We see believes at the end. In the original language that John writes, those are both in the present tense. And what that means is the believing and the defeating isn't this one-time event and then you just kick your feet up and just roll the rest of the time with ease. No, what it means is believing and defeating are daily things. You have to be believing every day to be defeating every day. And the days we're not believing are probably the days we're not defeating, but rather we'll be defeated. And so John knows this and encourages in this direction, right? He knows it's struggle. We need to own that it's going to be struggle, and there's going to be days where it's tough, and that's where we have to lean into this power that's been given to us, and that's the believes. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, which, by the way, that title, Christ and Son of God, are become important, important in just a minute here. But he's like, you've got to keep believing that. And part of believing that is saying, uh, I don't simply believe in Jesus, but I believe Jesus. There's a difference. Like, believing in is easy. It's over here. But to believe what he said, to believe what he calls us to, to believe it's possible, that's the tough spot. But that's where we need to be to overcome. And then that takes faith. Absolute, genuine faith. And again, not just faith in, but faith through. Because it means faith isn't just then an idea. Faith is an action. Because I find in my own life, Right? If, if I'm down doing some training at the gym with some people or whatever else, and they find out I'm a pastor and we can have a conversation, it's not hard for me to say, yeah, I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus, or I believe in the Bible. That's easy to say, right? But the real test of my belief is that I actually believe it and consequently do it, right? And, and that's real belief about Jesus. Not just in, but believing what he said and doing what he tells me to do. Because if I believe Jesus is truly God's son and he's coming to the world to reveal God's heart, th then the consequence of that is I'm going to know he's got my very best in mind for whatever he asks me to do, no matter how hard it is, how painful it might be, how stretching it could, could really kind of wash up in the shore of my life, I'm going to realize it's still God's very best for what he wants me to do. And to, to really lean into that takes a faith of action, an absolute faith of action. Because think about the things that Jesus asks. He says, hey man, if you want to really gain your life, you have to lose it. If you really want to live, you have to kind of die to yourself. 
If you really want to change the world, make an impact, bring lasting difference, here's this message called the Sermon on the Mount. Here's a shorter one called the Sermon on the Plain. This is what changes the world. This is the values of God in the world. Right? Be poor in spirit. Be meek. Be hungry and thirsty. Be pure in heart. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Right? Keep your word. All the stuff that's in there. That takes faith to do that stuff. It does, because the whole way of Jesus is so backwards. It's so backwards. It's ridiculous. It's almost opposite everything the world pushes. So when John's talking about overcoming the world through faith, he's just saying, take the values of the world and how things get done, and then look at Jesus who does everything backwards, and then lean into that. See, that's hard. I was just meeting with a group the other night, and they asked me, they're like, hey, you know, Jesus says these things in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think they're, they're doable in the real world, or they're practical? Like, again, if somebody sues you to give them double in return. And, and it was a great question, and I was really honest. I, I said, you know what? Um, I, I think that is the standard. I don't always do that standard. I should feel pressure to that standard. And if I'm really honest, the reason I don't live out those standards is because I don't have enough faith to do it. I just don't really believe that Jesus is serious about that. It can't work. In, in, in a world such as ours That's just nice, it's pie in the sky like, But I admit, my problem, my problem When I look at that as I aspire to it But some of the stuff I won't do because I don't have enough faith to do it I don't believe it'll really work I don't believe I'm really ready to, to give up To gain in that way That's always going to be the challenge But if I want to defeat the challenges of the world If I want to win and have victory Then it has to be through faith In the way God wants me to do it And that's tough, right? Because again, think about the world's impulses hate, indifference, self-preservation, suspicion, believing those are ulterior motives, or cynicism, xenophobia, where it's my group is good, your group is bad, whatever it is. Like, that's all in there. That's the worldly stuff. But the action of faith in God's plan, it says, I'm going to be doing and loving and believing, and that's how I overcome such things, right? In fact, I love the way God overcomes our ultimate problem. We, we learned this last week. We said God hates sin because sin kills love, but then God defeats sin through love. So again, the way the world is defeated is not by defeating the world. The way the world is defeated through love is the key, right? And, and so this all kind of comes together, and it takes faith to do that. And so every day, we just keep kind of building on this idea of trust in God, faith in God, believing God, and believing in a radical love with a resilient faith, and that's how we overcome the world. So, so John makes these really strong ideas and statements, right? It's cool stuff. And then suddenly, John pulls a John, okay? We've talked about John's train of thought as a roller coaster. He's the Jeff Goldblum of the Bible, right? He is the dog in Up that just goes, squirrel, and he just veers out of his lane at this point. He's like the balloon blown up and released into the room. So he's made all this great stuff about love and faith and victory and overcoming, and then at the end of all of this, he mentions Jesus being the Christ and just goes off that way. I was like, oh yeah, I meant to talk about that. And he just veers. Now here's the thing about where he veers from verses 6 to 12. Um, I'm going to read it to you. And as you read it and you hear it, your response is probably going to be, huh? Right? Some variation of that. And there's a part of me going into today where I'm like, can I skip it? Right? And not because it's bad. Not because it says something that's like, oh man, that's a heavy thing that I don't want to say because I don't want to bug people. No, it's more one of those things where you're going to be like, I don't even know what to do with that. It 
was like important to John, but it's not going to feel terribly maybe important to us. But since we're in it, we should learn to wrestle with it. And one of the things I love about this is, again, there are places in the Bible where we may just go, I, does that have value for me in a practical way? And it may or may not, but it teaches us something, right? And, and maybe in that, it's kind of what we're going to do today. It's like, it's going to teach you something. You're going to go, oh, I understand this passage a little bit better. And at the core of it, it's still celebrating that God came into the world in the person of Jesus in human form to connect with us, to live with us, to die for us, to rise for us, to then have a union with us. And that's kind of what John is defending here. And so for the third point in your notes, this is John kind of talking. This would be his phraseology, I think, in some ways. As God is my witness, the, this idea of life that he pushes so heavily is only found in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Like, this is what he's going to double down on, right? So we're going to all put on kind of our seminary hats for a minute. We're going to pay attention, and we're going to try to reconstruct this a little bit, because it's hard to reconstruct, but we're going to do our best. So here, John is once again dealing with his opponents. And what does he call his opponents? Antichrists. So he's all about fighting words, right? So he's like, there's this group of people that used to be in the church, and they, they split. And they split because they have different visions of who they are and who Jesus is. So when it comes to themselves, they think they're perfect. You ever met a perfect person? That's John's opponent, all right? So they think they're perfect, and they think they're perfect and sinless. Their poo don't stink because of their relationship to the Holy Spirit. They think that because of the Holy Spirit, they've now transcended being human, their fleshliness, and they're complete. And then they look at Jesus, and they go, man, there was a time where Jesus also had transcended his humanness, and so he was also perfect and complete. And in that sense, there was some stuff about him that were like, was like God's dude. But then there was other times in Jesus's life where he was not in the Spirit, had not transcended his humanness, and therefore he was sometimes human and sometimes divine. He wasn't always human and divine. And for this crowd that is in error, they love the Jesus the divine who had transcended his humanity and his fleshliness, but they had a low view of his humanity and when he was, quote, just in flesh, if you will, or just human. And so sometimes he was the Christ and sometimes he wasn't the Christ. That seems to be the problem. That's a loose reconstruction. And so from this now, John is going to rebuttal these claims, and he's going to pick some of their own buzzwords to do it, because it seems that they were kind of taking John out of context, and so he's going to take them and say, you say this, but I say that, and that's kind of what's going on. So to be honest, this is very insider baseball. If you're familiar with that phrase, if not, what that means is you know how you're hanging out with people, and they all know a topic, and you don't know the topic, and you're like, I don't know what to do with that. Like when you're hanging out with motorheads, and they're talking about CCs and leaders and bore, and you're like, bore, I'm bored. I don't know what this is about. You know, like, it's not your jam? Or you're hanging out with thinkers, and they're all talking about philosophers. I'm of Hume. I'm of, I'm of Kant. I'm of Nietzsche. No, I'm of Kierkegaard. You're like, is that where Thor is from? Is that Kierkegaard or Asgard? Or I don't know. Like, it just doesn't compute for you? Well, that's going to be a little bit how John feels for us initially, but then hopefully we can give a sense of what he's getting at. So, he's mentioned Jesus Christ, and then it causes him to veer into a defense of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. It says, this is he, verse 6, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but also by the water and the blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms with his testimony, so that we have these three as witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And all of these agree 
Since we believe human testimony, surely we can also believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his son. All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe, these are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his Son. Whew, right? Like you heard it, you saw it, but you're like, okay, spirit, water, blood, testimony, came in a human form. We know they didn't believe that Jesus was somehow in human form. And so let me see if I can paint the air here. All right, I have a picture for it too, because I'm all about like putting together pictures every week. All right, so this would be the way they're kind of seeing the life of Jesus. They're like, okay, there was these 30 years that he lived, and there he was in the flesh, he was human, but there wasn't much divine. And then for three years, there was this time of the divine, and then there's this time just before he dies where he loses the divine and then he dies. This is kind of the way they see it. And the core of this would be that those three years are the spirit years in essence. All right, so we can bring up this next slide right here, where uh, for that three-year period, uh, Jesus was Son of God-ish to them, right? He was Christ-y, if you will. And the reason they thought this is they thought, okay, from the time of his baptism, when he comes out of the water, the Spirit descends, and that's where Jesus is now spirit or spiritual. He's divine. And for three years, the Spirit's with him, but then on the cross, and this is John's fault, at least to them, John writes about how just before Jesus dies, he gives up his spirit and breathes his last. And for John's opponents, they go, oh, that's when the spirit left Jesus. The spirit left Jesus just before he dies, right? So again, this three years is the spirit years. And then for those 30 years, Jesus is not really the son of God. And then just before he dies, he stops being the son of God again. And, and then he dies. And, and this is their, quote, heresy. This is where they're at. And so John hears this, sees this, and he's like, man, you guys don't get it. You're dissecting Jesus out, and you're reducing him down. And so now, John, what he wants to do is set the record straight. He wants to correct their thinking. And so he appeals to these different things, right? The first is the witness of God's testimony in the Holy Spirit himself. Like, this Holy Spirit is one that can be looked at and go, hey, Jesus' relationship to the Holy Spirit isn't just something that was for three years. It goes all the way back to the beginning of his very conception. We see this in God's testimony from the Spirit in the beginning. Matthew chapter 1. Joseph is trying to think about if he puts away his betrothed because she's pregnant. Angel comes to him and says, Joseph, son of David. The angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So, so the opponents go, well, Jesus wasn't of spirit until the baptism. And John's like, uh, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, you idiots. Like, what do you mean? Like, the whole thing starts him coming in the flesh by being conceived of the Spirit. So the Spirit is with him from the very beginning of everything when he comes into the world. So when you deny he came in the Spirit, in the flesh, you miss that his flesh was brought forth by the Spirit, right? So at the beginning, it starts that way also continues up through the end in Romans chapter 1. We see it's the gospel, the good news about God's Son. And in this earthly life, so again, Paul understands the problem too. In this earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God. There's the label, right? When he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the idea that the Spirit was suddenly out of Jesus's existence and world it, just before he dies, like, like Paul's like, no, man, Spirit 
at the beginning, Spirit now, as he rises as the Son of God, proving that he's the Son of God. The Spirit is a part of the equation. And then even after the fact, after Jesus rises, we see in John 20, the disciples are all hidden in fear. They're freaked out, right? They're behind locked doors. And then Jesus comes to them and says, peace be with you. He says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So John even uses his own book in the defense a little bit to say, hey, man, you have to understand. From the beginning to the middle to the end, it wasn't like Jesus was sometimes flesh and sometimes spirit and sometimes of the spirit and sometimes not. No, the spirit was always a part of his, his existence. So this is countering these claims. That is kind of the first testimony that he leans into. But then he leans into these other testimonies, right, of water and blood. Like, what is the water? What is the blood? Well, the water is not simply the spirit, but the water of Jesus' baptism. This is another thing. And you have to understand, the opponents were big fans of that. They're like, yes, water, no blood. Like, they seem to be against the blood idea, but they were pro the water thing. But John's pro the water thing, too. So he's like, yes, with Jesus' baptism, there is a demonstration of the spirit. All right? And there is a testimony of God. So it says in Matthew chapter 3, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And then a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. Now, just quick note here. It doesn't say, this has become my Son. Right? Like, as soon as the Spirit comes on Jesus, now he's the Son of God, which is what the opponents thought. And he's like, no, 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 man. It actually says, this is my son. He's been my son. He's always been my son. And he's brought me great joy. He brings me great joy. This isn't a sudden change of, of, of person and place. No, this has always been the case, right? He's always been the son. He's always brought him joy. The other thing, like I said, is that God testifies here. Here's a fun fact, so if you're ever quizzed. You know how many times God speaks in the New Testament, like quotable speaks? Three, that's all. And your whole New Testament does once related to water and the second time related to blood. The one in between that is the transfiguration. But God only speaks three times, very few words. That's how it works, but it's his testimony. And so he testifies at the start, this is my son. Not has become, but is. He's always been, which means Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. But then we also see the testimony related to Christ's cross, his death. In John chapter 12, Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. You are new kernels. He says, Now my soul is deeply troubled, and I should pray, Father, save me from this hour, but it is for this very reason that I came. Father, glorify your name. And a voice spoke from heaven. I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. So God testifies at Jesus' baptism, and now God is testifying as Jesus brings up his death. And it's an affirmation, I'm going to glorify myself. And in particular, I'm going to glorify myself through what you do with this cross. So when the crowd heard the voice, some of it thought it was thunder, others declared it was an angel who spoke to him, and then Jesus said, no, the voice was for your benefit, not for mine. The time for judging this world has come, and Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. It's a subtle nuance. 
But the idea, again, is that the opponent said the Spirit left Jesus just before he dies. And God's like, no, 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 I'm testifying that the way he dies, the act of his actual moment of death changes everything. And that is just as much a spirit thing as anything else he did. And that just as much proves he's the son of God as anything else he does. And that proves he's the true Christ through coming, living, dying, rising, all of it. So John's defending this kind of theology of who Jesus is. And so the proper view is Jesus has always been and will always be the Christ, the Son of God, that chosen one, that divine human image bearer in one, just as God has testified through the Spirit, the water, and the blood. That's the argument that John makes. Thus he concludes in verses 11 through 12, and this is what God has testified. God testifies six times in this passage, basically, is what he's getting at. God testifies that he's given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And it always comes back to life, right? That's the big idea. That Jesus didn't come into the world to wreck your life, to lessen your life, to cheapen your life, to constrain your life, to wreck your life in some capacity. No, he came to unleash it, fulfill it, uh, just completely undo all of the lesserness and make it greater than because he comes to give abundance. And so if we wrap this whole thing together, God and Spirit testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Thus, life in the Son is found, experienced, expressed in doing right, loving others, and believing Jesus. That's the core. That big defense of who Jesus is still boils down to what he calls us to do, to be doing, to be loving, and to be believing. Now, right now, I want to ask everybody to just simply close your eyes, bow your heads, kind of get a little bit more isolated for a moment. And, and as you do, uh, we're going to prepare for a time of what we call communion or the Eucharist or the Last Supper, whatever labeling we want to use. But this whole thing is reminding us of our union with Jesus and that our union is that he came in flesh as God. He became human and divine, equally bound together in a mystery that we don't understand. But he did it for you because he loves you. He wants to transform you. He wants to show his love through you. He wants to give you life and abundant and real and full. That's why we say life is better with Jesus here. Not easier, not simpler, but better because he's in it with us to give us strength and power, forgiveness, to remove shame, guilt, whatever. Like that's what he does. Now, for some of us, we're like, I don't follow Jesus. I'm not a Christian. But if you're feeling a sense of, like, I'm compelled to that direction, I, I want Jesus to be the one that, that steps into my life and starts to do things, man, then you go to him and say, forgive me that I've been going my own way. I've been sinning against you. I've been missing the mark of what it is you've set up for life. And I want to be transformed. I want to be different. I want to be a loving person. I want to be close to you. Your prayer with your words, he hears you. And he brings change into your life. And if you make that your prayer today, we would love to know. We have a tile in the app you can click and be like, man, I decided to follow Jesus today. That would be awesome. We'd love to hear that. And for the rest of us, we know that love is hard. Doing right is hard. Believing sometimes is hard. But Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came to give us life. To make these things possible. So they're not burdensome. Burdening at times, but not burdensome. And maybe for us, it's just saying, God, help me to be renewed in you. Help me to be strengthened in you. Even today, this communion, 
which is only for those who follow Jesus, we remember he's given us what we need. Maybe today is just that recalibration. You've given this to me, and so, man, I want to get re-synced up with you. Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness and your love toward us. We need you, and we thank you in your good name.